There are moments throughout the course of one's life when a person discovers that what they had always thought to be true about something is completely upended. Moments like these are disorienting, they're confusing, but at the same time, these are the moments that force us to learn and to grow. And I'm sure we've experienced these moments, these, these disorienting, confusing moments. And this disequilibrium or cognitive dissonance, while it stretches us and makes us uncomfortable, it's also the thing that creates new categories in our brains and enables us to understand the world around us more fully. Right, As difficult as it might have been for all of us, learning that Darth Vader was Luke's father changed everything. But I, anyway, I bring that all up because the passage we're looking at this morning presents a picture of God that stands in opposition to the images of God that maybe we have conjured up in our own minds. Images that have been shaped by an understanding of authority, power, and glory that while they might sound biblical, they are influenced more by the world than we care to admit or even notice. Philippians 2, it stands at the center of the letter. And as I've been saying throughout the course of our series, its content informs everything that both precedes it and follows it. It is the heartbeat of the book. And as one author argues, it is Paul's master story. And so with that, let's jump into the text. And I'm just going to read through the first five verses of chapter 2. And it reads as follows. So if there is any encouragement in Christ... Any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. And so this passage begins with this little tiny word, so. And other translations use the term, therefore, which is probably a little bit more helpful because it's bigger and you can actually be reminded that something's happening here. And so I've mentioned that these little words, they matter. And what Paul is doing here is building on the point he was making in the previous paragraph. I would encourage you, if you did not get a chance to listen to Pete's sermon from last week, that you would go online and listen to that. And what is happening in that particular text is that we are being called to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, which he describes as a life of of unity and collective strength, even in the face of opposition and suffering, an experience that both Paul and the Philippians have in common. In other words, Paul's not finished talking about the nature of heavenly citizenship. In fact, he's about to provide us with not only a model and example to look to, but the means by which that citizenship and heavenly mindset will be cultivated and shaped within and among the community of faith. But before he gets there, he has some practical words for the Philippian church. 
And so verse 1, like I said, it reads as follows. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, he begins with these four conditional statements. These four conditional statements, and the first one begins with the church's encouragement in Christ. Those two words, massively important. In fact, if you notice in verse 5, Paul again uses the phrase, in Christ, suggesting that union with Christ is the overall guiding theme of Paul's thinking in this section. In fact, the phrase shows up ten times in Philippians. This is an obviously important concept for Paul, and one that John Calvin argues is the central tenet of the gospel. But back to the four statements. The best way to understand these conditional statements is to assume that they are true. Like if your spouse says to you, if you love me, you'll do the dishes for me. There's no question, right, about my love for Deanna. And so when she asks me to do the dishes, she's banking that request on the fact that I love her. And, and, and most times I do the dishes. And so the assumed reality for the Philippians, is that they are a people who have experienced the comfort and encouragement of being in Christ, a fellowship and partnership with one another that is caught up in the life and breath of the Holy Spirit and the mercy and deep-seated affection that comes from Paul, one another, and ultimately from God. Basically, Paul is encouraging them to remember this and to live in light of it. And all these assumed realities serve as a call to cultivate the unity that they have experienced as God's people because unity in Christ is the strength needed in the midst of suffering. And it's important to, to kind of understand that Paul knows there's a, a little bit of strife in the Philippian church. Now, this isn't like a major issue that's happening, but he wants to nip it in the bud before it persists and gets worse. And so he is encouraging them to remember where they came from, to remember who they are, and to remember that they actually, in belonging to Christ, they belong to one another. See, this is part of what it means to, be, to, to, to enter into a relationship with Jesus. And so often, for so many years, we have been told about this personal relationship with Christ. And, and while that's important, it's, it's often taught to us while neglecting the fact that when we are brought into union with Christ, we are brought into union with the body of Christ as well. It's a corporate calling. And it seems that maybe they were fumbling the ball a little bit. And he's reminding guys, you remember? Remember what it's like? Like, I know this is true of you. Do you guys still believe this? You still understand? Are you still living in light of it? And so then he moves on. And now he gets to the doing dishes portion of his point. And so being that I know that all of this is true and that we share these things in common, like, let's, let's get it done. Complete my joy. Complete my joy. What, what does he mean by complete my joy? Remember, this is a letter of friendship, of camaraderie. Both he and the Philippians are on a similar journey. They're engaged in similar struggles. And to hear that they are enduring, remaining unified, and embodying the teachings of Christ means that, one, what he's imparted to them remains, and, two, that they are continuing along a shared path of faithfulness. But he also knows that that faith has been a little bit disrupted. He's saying, no, no, get back onto this path of unity. Get back onto this path of faithfulness. And, and when he hears about that, 
It's going to complete his joy. Remember, his plans are to go there. We saw that last week. His plans are to get back to Philippi. But he also wants to know that even if he doesn't return, that these things are going to occur. And so it's similar to if we hear about a friend of ours who's doing well, it brings us joy. Or even more, if we hear about our children, that they are continuing in the faith or that they are repenting and coming back to the faith, it does something to us, right? It, it completes our joy. It makes us whole when the people we care deeply about are doing well, and specifically in the context of what Paul is getting at, when they are walking out their faith, when they are living in unity with one another, exhibiting the beauty of who God is. Remember, the God of the Bible is a Trinitarian God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, who are in perfect communion with one another. And that's what we model our lives. That's what we share in. It's actually really important because I think sometimes we, we, we talk so much about like what a beautiful example Jesus is and, and oh my goodness, he is. But we actually, when we put our faith and trust in Christ, we are sharing in that beautiful life of God. It's a participation, which again, there's that mystery thing that kind of comes, comes out again. And we can just say, yeah, it's mystery. I don't fully understand it. That's okay. So he talks about completing their joy. He then instructs them on how they will successfully complete his joy. He says this, right? He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So he gives them a, some particular instructions by being of the same mind or possessing the same mindset or cultivating a common pattern of thinking. And this word shows up throughout Philippians, this, this mind term. Having the same love, and, and the love that we're looking at here, it's that agape sort of love. The love that looks to the needs of others before looking to the needs of oneself. He says to be in full accord, and again, of the same mind, doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. And again, that selfish ambition term turns up again. And so the main point that Paul is driving towards but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves, looking not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Oftentimes, when you see in Paul's letters the word but, what, what Paul is actually driving at, he's saying, like, this is what I'm getting at. This is my main point. And so he's moving us through the argument. He's saying, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves, looking not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This doesn't mean we don't take care of ourselves. It doesn't mean we don't look to our own interests, but, but in the same way we look to our own interests, we also look to the interests of others. And so these instructions are, are fascinating, actually, especially when you place them in the context of living within a Roman colony. See, they fly in the face of the cultural air that the Philippians would have been breathing at the time. And in Rome, a place where honor and status meant everything. No one counted others more significant than themselves. That's just not what you did. In fact, humility was not considered a virtue, and friendship, while important and valued among Romans, was a self-serving means to an end. And so to be a citizen of Rome means that you were about exalting yourself to a place of honor and status, and it meant that others knew who you were if you possessed any honor or status. And so the things that Paul is encouraging 
the Philippian church with fly in the face of everything they have grown up to believe. Everything. So in other words, heavenly citizenship is marked by self-giving love and unity. It is a call to a common life, one where needs are taken care of and burdens are shared. As the old adage goes, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. One commentator describes this heavenly citizenship, and this is the first slide I have. Um, Stephen Fowl, he says this, we can make demands on each other's lives because we are in Christ. Our common participation in the body of Christ sets us on a shared journey in which we can and must engage each other as fellow pilgrims, offering help when needed, making demands when called for, exhorting and praying for each other as we move into deeper communion with God. In other words, there ought to be something different about the body of Christ, the community of faith. I think where I'm encouraged as, as I participate in this body here, Redeemer Fellowship, is I see seeds of this here, where physical needs are met and people are cared for. But let's be honest. This is really difficult for us, mostly because we live in a society and the air we've breathed for our entire lives is air that pulls us toward this rugged individualism where it's about me and about the things that I can accomplish. And so when we count others, and when we count others as more significant than ourselves, we are actually living in direct contrast to the things that we share as a culture in Western society, but, but even more important, we're living in direct contrast to our first parents who believe that the path to becoming like God was a path of autonomy, and this is the path we all traveled at one point in our lives, and it's a path that we often find ourselves straying toward. See, Paul knows this. He knows this, and he knows that this path of autonomy and, and self-governance, it actually leads to death. Remember what the serpent said to, to Eve in the garden. No, 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 God knows that when you eat of this, you will become like him. Oh, isn't that our desire? He's tapping into the very thing we desire. We're going to talk a little bit more about that in a second. But Paul knows this, and it's why he fights tooth and nail to call these early churches to humility and unity. And the unity to which he calls us to is a unity that is located in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, verse 5 is an interesting verse. It's, it's a transition verse. It takes us from what's going on with us to the reason why this is what we should be about. And it sets up the entire thing that is coming next. Let me just read the verse. Verse 5, it says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So first thing, Paul issues a command to have this mind among yourselves. In essence, Paul is commanding the Philippians to cultivate the mindset or pattern of thinking within and among their community that he has just described. Same word for mind. And, and the second thing, this pattern or mindset, this pattern of thinking is cultivated as the church lives together in Christ and in participation with the Spirit. 
So in a sense, what Paul is doing is what New Testament scholar Michael Gorman argues is challenging, to, challenging the Philippians to be a church that participates in the life and story of King Jesus, to participate in the life and story of King Jesus. In other words, the mindset that Paul just describes and that he is encouraging the Philippians to cultivate is found only in the life and story of Christ. And it is a life and story that flows out of who Jesus is and who he has always been. And I want to I caveat for a second, not caveat, I want to take a little detour for a second. This idea of living in light of a story or, or participating in a story. See, there's really only two stories in the world. See, there's the story of Adam. It's an exploitive story. It's a story that seeks to use the, 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 the good that I possess, the, the privileges and power and authority that I possess for my own gain, to, 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 to lift up my own desires and, and whatever it is that I want. And then there is the story of Christ, which we're about to read in a second, which is a love story. It's an agape story, a self-giving story. These are the two stories that we, in essence, have, have an opportunity to decide which one are we going to participate in, which one are we going to share in. And so the text continues. Verses 6 through 8, this next section, actually, before we jump into the passage, it's a massively important part of Scripture, which means that we're not going to be able to dig into every detail. But I will do my best to uncover what I think the main point is. And so this particular passage, it deals with what theologians call the incarnation, how the second person of the Trinity took on flesh and became man. But before we get into it, I want to read a couple of quotes. The first one is from John Calvin, and I have a slide for this. He says this in his Institutes of the Christian Religion. He says, the Son of God descended miraculously from heaven, yet without abandoning heaven was pleased to be conceived miraculously in the virgin's womb, to live on the earth and hang upon the cross, and yet always filled the world as from the beginning. Over a thousand years before that, Athanasius wrote, this one's a little bit longer, so bear with me, for he was not enclosed in the body, nor was he in the body, but not elsewhere, nor while he moved that body, nor while he moved that body was the universe left void of his activity and providence. But what is most marvelous, being the word, he was not contained by anyone, but rather himself contained everything. And as being in all creation, he is in essence outside of everything by his own power, arranging everything and unfolding his own providence in everything to all things and giving life to each thing and to all things together, containing the universe and not being contained, but being holy in every respect in his own father alone. So also being in the human body, and himself giving it life, he properly gives life to the universe also and was both in everything and outside of all. You guys catch that? In other words, and this is, this is again, this is mystery, and this is what theologians call the extra Calvinisticum. You can write that down and, and look it up later. In other words, Jesus did not lose anything nor cease to be God when he became man, his divinity was never diminished upon entering creation and taking on human flesh. And his rule and reign as Lord and King was never abandoned. That is a massively important 
point for us to understand. And, and in fact, to disagree with that is, is outright heresy, right? So, so just to protect you guys from heresy, right? It's so important that we understand that the incarnation did not remove any sort of divinity from the second person of the Trinity. So with that said, let's take a look at our text. Verses 6 through 8 reads as follows. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So we're going to get a little technical for a few minutes, all right? So bear with me. Verse 6 begins with the phrase, who though he was in the form of God. So this is what is described as a concessive phrase for all you grammarians out there, meaning that the humility which Paul uses to speak of Christ when placed up against the glory and wonder of who he is as God is a concession or an allowance, maybe, and, and I'm careful here, even the word compromise might be helpful here, but, but hold, hold the thought. Now, while grammatically this is perfectly acceptable and probably a correct way to translate this phrase, what I learned in seminary and what I believe to be 100% true is that context is king. Context is king. And the context is forcing us to re-examine this translation because to assume that Jesus made any concessions or compromises in his incarnation just doesn't sit well with my understanding of the Trinitarian God. And so the way in which we should translate this phrase is to allow it to carry both what scholars call a concessive and a causal understanding, which means that a better translation of this particular verse might be who, because he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. There's a difference there, and, and both are absolutely grammatical, grammatically acceptable when translating this verse. There's a big difference between because and though. It's a big difference. And when I discovered this difference, which was through the help of a New Testament scholar named Michael Gorman, that's when I began to experience that disequilibrium that I was talking about earlier. Now, hold on to this, because we are absolutely getting back to this. Follow me. Like I said, this can be a little technical this morning, but it's really cool. And I'm really excited about it. I don't know if you can tell. So a couple things. The text has a few phrases we need to deal with. The passage says that he was in the form of God. What does that mean? Well, it means that the person of Jesus, one, pre-existed, meaning that he was from eternity past, prior to his incarnation, and two, that pre-existence shared in the eternal glory of God, making that glory visible. In other words, Jesus is God. That's what that means. Jesus is God. It also says that in the incarnation, Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But whoa, whoa, what do you mean? but I thought he was equal with God. He is. In fact, a better way to understand this is to say that Jesus, who we can 100% assume is equal with God, 
did not use his divine prerogatives and privileges as something to be exploited or used for his own benefit, but rather he emptied himself, which the theologians have argued about throughout church history. And like we said earlier, it doesn't mean that his divinity was diminished in any way. In fact, Paul is very clear about what this means. The second person of the Trinity emptied himself, how? By taking the form of a slave by being born in the likeness of men, by being found in human form, and ultimately humbling himself and becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so the form of God meant that Jesus is God. Therefore, the form of a slave means that he really is a human being. He really is God, and he really is a human being, but he did not use his godness in a way to, to lift up himself. He didn't exploit his divine nature for the sake of his own benefit. In other words, the, person, the second person of the Trinity, though he was in the form of God, which gave him every right to do whatever he pleased, to exploit his status and identity, to do so would have actually gone against the very status and identity he possessed. Follow me here. The most godlike thing Jesus could have done is enter creation as a humble man from Nazareth and submit himself to the Father by dying in the most shameful way an individual could die in that time on a Roman cross. The most godlike thing the second person of the Trinity could have done and did do was die the most shameful death for the sake of his people. That's what it means to be God. Are we catching that? that is, this is so important. This is so important. And, and what I'm trying to say and, and what was paradigm shifting for me is that Philippians 2 tells us something about the nature and character of God. He is a being who expresses strength through weakness who wins by losing, who takes the position of shame for the sake of his good creation and his people who have gone astray. Now, why this is difficult for us to wrap our minds around is because our understanding of glory, of power, and authority is tragically shaped by the world around us. We have been brought up on the idea that might makes right and that heroes win the day by blowing their enemies away to bits. But what we see in the cross of Jesus, the place where the enemies of this age, death, the devil, and the power of sin were defeated, is the glory and wonder of God. The cross is the glory and wonder of God. Jesus died on a cross not by compromising his divine nature, but rather Jesus died on a cross because of his divine nature. That is good news. That is excellent news. Stephen Fowle says it again really well, and I have a slide for this. Self-emptying displays something crucial about the character of God. In refusing to use his participation in the glory of the God of Israel for his own advantage, he adopted instead the disposition of self-emptying, which includes the incarnation obedience, crucifixion, and ultimately exaltation. Christ is actually displaying the form of God. He is making the glory of God manifest to humans. N.T. Wright says the real emphasis of this passage is not simply a new view of Jesus. It's a new understanding of God. 
And not only was this the most godlike thing Jesus could have done, it was also the most human thing he could have done. While Adam grasped at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because he wanted to elevate himself to the place of God, Jesus made himself nothing for the sake of others. 2 Corinthians says it like this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who because he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. The truly human one is providing us with the proper way to be human. With the proper way to be human. And I think the Adam backdrop is fascinating. Because Adam had this opportunity to live out his calling as the human one, but he chose sin above being the thing that he was called to be. He chose a subhuman path rather than the truly human path. And his path to glory was cut off because of that choice. It's massively important. And then the text continues in verses 9 through 11 this idea of divine recognition. And, and, and what I think is most surprising, especially for a group of people living in a Roman colony, as they might have been sitting there reading or hearing this letter read to them in a church, probably a house church, having it read over them, where they would have been most shocked is that status, honor, and citizenship in their culture meant everything. And slavery and death on a cross was quite possibly the worst thing. The fact that God's response to this shameful existence of his son is to declare over him and to the world that he is right. That he is right. That self-giving love, humility, and placing others above yourself is actually what it means to be a human being. And it is the most exalting thing that we can do to empty ourselves. This is what is truly honorable. And this is what the character of God looks like. This is what it also means for us to be followers of Jesus. And he says this in this last section, verses 9 through 11. He says, therefore, in light of everything I just said, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is, is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What's important for us to understand about this passage is that God the Father is not giving Jesus a reward. That's not what's happening here. What God the Father is saying you see what just happened to Jesus? You see that three days later he rose again? You see that he ascended to the right hand of the Father and rules over all creation? That is proof that everything I just told you about him is absolutely of God. It's a proof text. His exaltation, his resurrection, his lordship proves that the path to glory is actually the path to suffering. And that goes against everything we believe as human beings. Why? Because we have been so inundated with a subhuman view of what it means to be an image bearer of God. We don't get it. 
And Jesus comes and he shows us this is what it means to be human. And in fact, this is what it means to be God. The exalted one gave of himself because that's who he is. That's who he is. Because he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That rocked my world when I first grasped that. That is what N.T. Wright says is a new view of God, a new understanding of God. Not new because it didn't exist before, but new in the sense that like, oh, that's what you mean. That kind of new. When that thing just kind of clicks, where we experience that disequilibrium or cognitive dissonance, and then things come together. Oh, that's why Luke has the force. As we close our time this morning, my hope is that we would walk away both encouraged and challenged, encouraged, because hopefully this morning we caught a glimpse of God. Hopefully we caught a glimpse of God as we worked our way through this passage. Encouraged, because maybe in reading through this passage we were, we were reminded of those times where we experience that same mind, that fellowship in the Holy Spirit, that love and affection that only comes from God and through his people. But challenged, because what we saw today hopefully gave us a deeper insight into the nature and character of God. And not only did it give us insight, but hopefully it gives us a vision for what it means for us to share together in the life of Christ. That we are to be a people not only forgiven by the cross, but formed by it in the way we love one another, care for one another's needs, and reach out to the broken and lost we live among. The question that we should be wrestling with is which story do we want to participate in? Whose life do we want to share in? The exploitive life of Adam who grasped that God for his own self-whatever to lift up himself, or are we going to participate in the story of the truly human one, the God of all eternity, the second person of the Trinity, who because he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped? That's where we wrestle. That's where we wrestle daily. But God is clearly telling us that this is who I am. This is who I am, and this is who you ought to be. And you can have that together as the body of Christ, individually as Christians, as you share in the life of Jesus by the power of the Spirit, as we pray with one another, as we care for one another, as we give of ourselves, as we look to the needs, as we consider the status and honor of others higher than the status and honor of ourselves, we lift one another up. And finally, for those of you sitting here who maybe are unsure of where you stand, the God of the Bible is a, self, is a God of self-giving love and mercy whose very nature was, is, and always will be one that gives of himself for the sake of others. What we saw today in this passage 
is a picture of the person and work of Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. He entered into creation. He lived a life of utter faithfulness. He died on a cross so that our sins might be forgiven and we might spend eternity with him. What he asks of us in return is to bend our knee in faith and repentance so that we might experience his grace. And upon experiencing his grace, he fills us with his Holy Spirit so that we might live a life of faithful service to him, which will result in us being raised up on the last day. Today is the day of salvation. If you hear his voice, do not harden your heart, but bend your knee to King Jesus. This is good news. This is the good news. Let's go to the Lord. Father in heaven, Lord, we stand in awe of who you are. Lord, you are far above anything we can comprehend. At the same time, you made yourself known to us through your son, Jesus, because you are a God who is love. That's what your word says. It says God is love. That it is how you identify yourself. Oh, Father, we thank you for that. Father, I pray, Lord, that the words of this passage would penetrate deeply within all of us, Lord God. And not just individually, but as the body of Christ, that we would embody this vision of what it means to be the body of Christ, of what it means to be human, of what it means to show the world what God is like. Oh, Father, help us to do that as a people. And Lord, as we partake of the supper this morning, Lord, that you would nourish us with your grace, Lord God. Feed our souls with your body and blood, Lord God. Thank you so much for the precious gift of the cross, Lord God, where you reveal yourself in one of the most godlike ways you could have done, Lord God. Thank you for that. And we thank you for the resurrection that proves you truly are the God of, of, of Scripture, the God of the universe, Lord God. That is our proof, Lord God. You rose again. Father, we love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.